Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Lord, we want that to be all of our hearts. As it was the psalmist, Psalm 119, we ask that you would make it our heart as well, that you would help us to see the glorious beauty of your law, in particular of what we see here in Leviticus. I pray that you would help these truths that are exemplified in the offerings to be made clear so that we might know how to approach you still, how to live before you, how to worship you still, and how to honor you with all that you have given us, particularly in Christ. It's our desire that he would be exalted this afternoon. And so we pray that you would accomplish that purpose even as we look at your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the middle of an examination of the book of Leviticus. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the first three offerings, which were the burnt offerings, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Today we'll look at the next two offerings, which are the sin offerings and the guilt offerings. And last, or two weeks ago, we noted that the purpose of Leviticus purpose of really all of the Old Testament law, it was not to give instructions on how one can be saved. That's a, a, a large misunderstanding that Christians have about the law. The purpose of the law was not to tell people how to be saved. Rather, it was instructions on how to draw near to God. And so we need to look at the law in light of that, how God allows sinners to come near to him. It's as if he's saying, this is what you need to do if you want to enjoy the glory of my presence. The law was also a teaching instrument, though, in that it, was, it teaches us about God. It teaches us about his character. And the first three offerings, which we looked at, really teach us the nature of true worship. The, the burnt offering signified the worshiper's complete dedication to God and God's complete acceptance of them on the basis of atonement. The second was the grain offering. And that was an acknowledgement that in light of the covenant that God had made with Israel, He was providing for them all of their needs. And so the grain offering was a way of expressing, all that I have is a gift that you have given to me, and I'm giving it back to you as an expression of thanks, as an expression of joy in recognizing you've given me all of this. And the third offering, the peace offering, is really just a, a simple expression of joy at being at peace with God, recognizing that because God was for Israel and not against Israel, immense blessings were coming upon them for their enrichment. And so these were given as a way to express the joy of being at peace with God based on their sin having been atoned through the offering. And God says that these offerings, as they were burned up on the fire, they were like a sweet aroma to him. It means he, he delighted in them. 
It was just like he delights when he hears us sincerely sing from our hearts the words that we sang in the hymns this morning. It gives him great joy. But the next two offerings that we look at today are the non-sweet aroma type. Now, he provided these offerings for Israel's worship, but they, these offerings in and of themselves were non-sweet. Not because they were bad, but because they were simply preliminary steps to worshiping him. A way to think about these offerings is, think about the two most common, I think they're the two most common chemicals used in cleaning a kitchen. My guess is they're ammonia and bleach. Just don't use them together. Bad things happen when that happens. Ammonia and bleach. Now those two chemicals are not particularly sweet smelling. But they serve a good purpose. They sanitize surfaces so that those surfaces can then be used to create a sweet smelling meal. Sanitization is necessary and good, but the smell from those chemicals is not necessarily sweet. So that's similar to these offerings. they're, They're purification offerings. You can think of them as sanitization offerings, which allows the dirty worshiper who is dirty with sin and dirty with guilt to come into the presence of a perfectly pure God. So this is the nature of these two offerings we'll look at today. They were the means God provided to deal with sin and guilt. And in that sense, they purified the worshiper so they could worship. Simple outline today. The sin offering and the guilt offering. The sin offering deals with the seriousness of sin. But it also points to the reality that there is forgiveness for all sin. And the guilt offering points to the nature of guilt. It will help us understand the nature of guilt as well as the path to guilt removal. Now let's be honest from the outset. There are some things within Scripture that are unpleasant to talk about. And guilt and sin are one of those topics. But they're things that are better addressed than avoided. Likewise, there's other things in life that aren't fun to talk about, but they need to be addressed. Take cancer, for instance. Kills thousands and thousands of people each year in America. I'm sure each of you have known somebody who has had cancer and has died from cancer. If you were to be diagnosed with cancer and you came to your physician, would you be willing to receive chemotherapy for that condition? Knowing that it would cause you to vomit, Cause you to lose your hair, make you feel worse than you already did. Would you be willing to go through that treatment? Would you trust a doctor that would give you such medicine that would cause so much humiliation and so much pain? Or would you choose to go to the man on the street with the slick hair who could sell you, maybe even cheaper, some cocaine? To help you deal with the pain of the cancer. 
What would you be more concerned with? Feeling better or getting better? I introduced today's sermon in such a way because I, I sincerely care about each of you. And I don't find particular joy in talking about sin and guilt. But just like a physician, any good physician, would be compelled to tell the truth, likewise I feel compelled to tell the truth about these realities. And more importantly, I want to address it because God addresses it. This is something that God cares so much about. He made two offerings explicitly for this purpose. I mean, you think about all the things that God instituted in his worship and all of the tabernacle worship began with these offerings, five of them, and two of them deal with sin and guilt, which tells us this is something that the creator of the universe recognizes as a reality that we need to deal with. This is not something he just wants us to forget about and pretend that's not there. And like the great physician, he gives us these instructions that we might deal with the realities of sin and guilt. And I believe, just as we saw in Psalm 32, that as we are honest with the reality of our sin and our guilt, it will lead to greater rejoicing. Do you remember what David said in Psalm 32? Rejoice. All of you who know your sins have been forgiven. So God wants us to know how to deal with these two unpleasant realities. And that's why he provided these two offerings for Israel. So let's look at the first offering, the sin offering. He says in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally, in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them. And then he speaks of the priest, what the priest is supposed to do. He's to bring, so as to bring guilt on the people, let, let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin that that priest has committed. And what I want to point out is what he says at the beginning of verse 2 there, that this offering was not just for any sin. What kind of sin was this for? It's an unintentional sin. It's explicitly for unintentional sins that were committed by the worshiper. Now, we can all remember times in our life where we were having a conversation with a friend and we said something that offended them and we didn't know. We find out maybe days, maybe weeks later that they were deeply hurt by what we said. We had offended them, but it was totally unintentional. Maybe we thought we were being funny or maybe we didn't recognize that we had kind of transgressed something that they were very sensitive to. But we've all been in those instances where we've unintentionally hurt somebody that we care about. But we did nonetheless. And just because it wasn't intentional doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it didn't offend the person we were talking to. And so when we found out about it, we wanted to do everything we could to clarify and make things right. We wanted to make sure that that person understood we were not trying to hurt them. And, and so we, we did everything we could to make things right in that relationship. And that's really the scenario behind the sin offering. And again, one of the things that stands out in this offering is 
that the instructions are given to various people. Notice this. In verse 3, he speaks to the anointed priest. And then in verse 13, different instructions are given if the whole assembly, the whole congregation sins unintentionally. And then different instructions to a leader in verse 22. And then in verse 27, if a common person sins unintentionally. And I think that the reason that these instructions are given to various people is emphasizes that forgiveness and reconciliation are available to all people, everybody within the congregation. However, because of the differences in what the different groups must do, it also shows that greater purification is necessary for those with greater responsibility. Notice, again back at verse 3, that the priest would be required to actually bring the blood of the sacrificial bull into the holy place, and then they would sprinkle the blood of that bull seven times on the curtain that covered the holy of holies. So they would actually have to bring that blood and actually sanctify the holy place. Why? Because that priest was the one who had sinned. He had defiled the holy place of God. And so he'd have to cleanse, sac- you know, sacrificially speaking, cleanse the, the whole holy place with the blood of an animal, the blood of a bull. The same thing would happen if the whole congregation sinned unintentionally because the priest would have been part of the whole congregation. And you might be thinking, well, how in the world would uh, a whole congregation sin unintentionally? Well, actually, there was a number of times in Israel's history. If you think about what happened to Israel as the years and generations progressed, went on, many of them forgot the law. There were times when the law was at lost. And so people weren't practicing the law at all, weren't doing the Levitical sacrificial system. And it wasn't because they were choosing to be rebellious. They just had never been instructed. It was unintentional. And yet notice, they'd still be guilty. They'd still be guilty, even though it was unintentional. They had still offended God, and God here provides a means to deal with their unintentional sin. Also for the leader and the common person. Now, their sacrifices were relatively same. The only difference between the leader and the common person is the leader would have to sacrifice a male goat and a common person a female goat. But the the process of the sacrifice was more or less the same. And what this shows us again is that God takes all sin very seriously, even unintentional sins. I mean, let that sink in. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Now, get it. Now, if a person sins, And does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. Even though he didn't know it, he's still guilty. So then it's explained what he needs to do in verse 18. And then look at verse 19. Summarizes the guilt offering by saying this. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. I mean, how often 
Have you thought, well, I didn't intend to do this wrong. Therefore, there's really no sin involved. It's actually not true. We can, and I think often do, unintentionally sin against God. And we're guilty. Whether we intended to or not. Well, if this is how God sees unintentional sins, how does God view intentional sins? Or maybe more pertinent to our study today, how would a person in the Old Testament deal with their intentional sin? Because this sin offering isn't for intentional sins. Grasp this. Intentional sins. Lying. Failing to observe the Sabbath. Cheating. Coveting, I suppose. Intentional sins could not be atoned for by this offering. For a person's sin to be atoned for, if it was intentional, they would have to wait until the Day of Atonement, which happened once a year, before they could enter into the presence of God. I mean, just imagine if that legislation was still in place today. How big would our worship services be if we could not come into the presence of God because we had committed an intentional sin? And those people who had committed intentional sin would have to wait a whole year maybe. Or six months or however long it was until Yom Kippur. To cover this intentional sins. Now some sins, the really bad sins such as adultery and murder and direct violation of the Sabbath. Those were, would be dealt with through capital punishment. Now, that doesn't mean God was sending that person to hell. That was just what was required for violating the law. They would have to be killed. Those are for egregious sins. But for just intentional sins that weren't maybe that egregious, there was still a heavy consequence. And that consequence was, you do not get to enjoy the glory of my presence. And it's communicating something. We're not dealing with a imperfect God, an impure God. This is a God that demands complete holiness in his worshipers. And he won't be mocked. And let us remember that God's response to sin hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And so just because we are Christians under the new covenant, it doesn't mean that God just all of a sudden thinks our sin is okay. Our intentional sin is no big deal. Or even our unintentional sin. He does. He hasn't changed. The means whereby we gain forgiveness and we gain acceptance to God's presence has radically changed. We've gone from sacrificing imperfect animals that can never deal with our sin and our guilt completely to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. But God's character, God's view towards sin has not changed. And when we commit intentional sin or unintentional sin, He still views it the same. 
And as we consider this, let's not forget the point of the sacrifice is to provide forgiveness. God gave this not to just beat up on his worshipers. He's telling the worshipers what's true about them. You're sick with sin. You've got a problem. If somebody was infected with some contagious disease, they would be set aside and put in isolation until that disease would be dealt with before they were able to come back because we don't want, when a kid gets sick, we don't want them in the nursery, not because we don't care about the kid, but we don't want that illness to spread. And, And when that happens, it upsets you, right? Why did that person, that kid with the snotty nose touch all the apples at the supermarket? You, because you want that contamination to be limited. And that's what God's saying. He's, he's, he's telling the truth. You're contaminated. You cannot violate my holy presence. But he gives this also to provide forgiveness. And note that after the instructions for each of the four groups of people, that all of in each, in each of those instructions, they always end with this phrase. He will be forgiven. As the person who committed an unintentional sin offered up this sacrifice, God promises every time. If you do this, you will be forgiven. So in summary, what the sin offering teaches us is that God takes all sin very seriously. Intentional and unintentional. And, and that there is a difference between sins. But second of all, it demonstrates that God desires for, to, to extend forgiveness for all sins. Even if it means waiting for the day of atonement, His heart is to forgive the sin. He, he doesn't just simply want to expose us and leave us there guilty he wants to forgive it and he also desires to deal with our guilt which is why he provided the guilt offering now when we sin sin brings about guilt you could you could think of sin as or guilt You can think of guilt as the stain that comes with the act of sin. So, to clarify, guilt is not simply a feeling, it's a fact. If you commit sin, you are guilty. By fact. Now, it may accompany some guilty feelings, but the guilt is not latent in the, or bound up in the feelings, it's bound up in the fact that you sin. Guilt is different from guilty feelings. Now, guilty feelings usually accompany the fact of guilt. But the feelings aren't really the problem. It's the reality of guilt that's the problem. You are guilty. You did commit that sin. You are stained with guilt. And you'll notice that unlike the other offerings, interestingly enough, that this offering has an introduction. In fact, the offering itself is not even mentioned until verse 6. In verses 1 through 5, they just list various ways. This is again in chapter, chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5 just list various ways that a person could 
be guilty. They could touch an unclean thing, verse 2, or touch human uncleanness, verse 3. Swear thoughtlessly with his lips, verse 4. Verse 5. What they're supposed to do is then confess. But it's not until verse 6 that actually the guilt offering is described. And so this introduction really provides a transition from the sin offering to the guilt offering. That when we commit sin, guilt follows. And the sin offering allowed one to make their transgression right before God. And the guilt offering allowed one to deal with the burden of guilt. Now note that God goes out of his way to make it feasible for everyone to deal with their burden of guilt. We have, to, we have to recognize this. God's going out of his way. He wants to deal with the burden of guilt. That's the purpose of this offering. Because he makes provision for everybody. Not just the rich man who had lots of animals to sacrifice, but he, he gives provision to everybody. In fact, if you notice verse 7, if a person couldn't afford a lamb, they could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. And if they couldn't even afford those, verse 11... Verse 11, they could just bring some fine flour, a tenth of an ephah of flour to offer up instead. He's, in other words, he's saying, I, I recognize that there, are, there may be people in the congregation who are burdened with guilt, but they don't have the means to be able to provide a sacrifice. Well, I will do whatever I can to help them. You have to see the heart of God here. The guilt offering was costly. And because of that, only if a person felt truly convicted of their sin would they seek to make this guilt offering. Because there would be a cost involved. So a person's not just going to do this for the sake of ritual showing up, just doing the there would be there would be it would cost money. It would cost maybe a, a month's wages. They're only going to do this if they're truly convicted. And they desire to make things right with God. And, and this is also seen in the three major elements of this guilt, guilt offering ritual. What gets emphasized with the guilt offering are three things. Confession, atonement, and a willingness to make restitution. These really these teach us how even today we can deal with the burden of guilt. And so if you are here today, you're feeling weighed down by sins that you've committed. Maybe it was 20 years ago, or maybe it was just on the way to church this afternoon. This offering actually instructs us on even how today Christians under the new covenant can deal with the burden of guilt. First of all, in verse 5, we see the importance of confession. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these, he shall confess that in which he has sinned. So the first thing that would happen in this guilt offering would be confession. The, the person would confess the sin that has come along with this guilt that they feel. Confession is an honest admission that what you did was wrong. There's no justification. There's no excuse. It's owning up to the reality that what you did was wrong. And this is usually the last thing that we're compelled to do. When we commit wrong. 
especially if somebody's pointing out to us. Instead, what we like to do is we like to make excuses or we run from reality. We, we turn to entertainment. We turn to food or to friends. We're feeling guilty for what we've done and instead we want to just pretend like we actually didn't do what we did and eventually our feelings will just get better. And so, and so we're burdened, God burdens us with guilty feelings for what we've done and instead of responding rightly by confessing, we hold on to that sin and we just ignore the reality. And that's what David described in Psalm 32 and he says, my, it was like my bones dried up as the heat of summer. And it was like a blob before the Lord. He had no strength left, no vitality until he confessed his sins to the Lord. He says in Psalm 32 that we might learn the blessing of forgiveness. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Then in verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And because he's dealt with that sin, he can say, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why is he so excited? He's excited because he's found freedom. He's found release. He was once burdened and crushed. He was like a worm before God and men. And all of a sudden, he is free. That guilt has been removed. And he, he's like, he's ready to fly and rejoice. And he wants others to know the joy he has found in confessing his sin. So we need to own up to the reality of what we've done. We can't run from reality. Likewise, we can't, we can't blame others for our sin. How often that's a response instead. It was mom's fault. It was my dad's fault. It was the kid's fault. If, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have lost my temper. It's the boss. Too much stress. No, instead, when we sin, we need to own up to the reality. We sinned. And this has been part of the problem ever since the beginning, right? When Adam and Eve first sinned, God came to Adam in the garden. Did you eat of the fruit? It was the woman you gave me, God. And we don't see this in Scripture, but no, Adam. It wasn't the woman I gave you. It was you. No, Eve, it wasn't the serpent, though he didn't help. It was you, Eve. You sinned. Remember what Nathan said to David? It's the same thing he could say to each one of us. You're the man. You're the man. You did it. You sinned. Yes, you might have been put in a, in a tempting situation, but you did. You did sin. We need to own up to our sin. And when we do, all oh, the blessing that comes with confession, which is, of course, the point of Psalm 32. And this is also why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to confess our sins. And so if you're convicted of a sin, even if it was unintentional, confession is necessary. And this is also why James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
confess. Again, these are New Testament passages. We need to still confess our sin. However, we must not forget that it's not the confession that removes the guilt. It's a part of the process, but that's not what removes the guilt. That guilt can only be removed through the shedding of blood. Which is why there's an atonement that's necessary. As with the other offerings, the shedding of blood for atonement is the key means for removing guilt. Look at verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female of the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on behalf of his sin. And we need to remember that, again, the means for atonement was the shedding of blood. Sin happened, therefore, death is the consequence. Life must be taken for that sin. And it was the worshiper himself who would come to the priest with the animal from his flock, and the worshiper himself would personally slit the throat of the animal that he would be offering up in place of himself. Now let me state the obvious. God was not requiring the worshiper to do the act of killing the animal himself because he was concerned about them feeling better. God wanted them to know this is the cost of your sin. You did it. You take that innocent animal's life. He was teaching them there is no such thing as a small sin. He wasn't aiming at assuaging the person's feeling but seeking to deal with a very real problem. And so I say that because we need to recognize it's good to feel guilty when you sin. It's good. It's reflection of the reality of what's happened. Typically, however, these feelings of shame over our guilt is what we seek to run away from. But the, the guilty feelings are what lead us to actually deal honestly with what we've done. They help us see that there's been a problem. Something's happened. Just like the, the feeling of physical pain. If, if somebody in your family put their hand on a hot stove, that pain tells them, stop, get it off. It's good. The pain is a good thing. Now, it doesn't feel good. You don't want them to just sit there and endure it you want them to seek attention first of all you want them to stop what's causing the pain and then you want them to seek the medical help to deal with it likewise guilty feelings tell us we need to get right with god they tell us we need to go to the hospital of god guilty feelings tell us we need to get right with god they're not something to ignore just like physical pain you don't ignore it you run to God. It's a good thing. They would lead the worshiper to recognize they need to have their sin atoned for. They need this offering. This offering also tells us that hiding and ignoring reality will not prevent us from escaping the consequences of guilt. 
the only means to escape the consequences is for a life to be taken. There needs to be an atonement. Blood must be shed because we know Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We can't just pretend we didn't do what we do. We did. We did. We did sin. Something must die if we are going to enter the presence of God. And just as the Old Testament worshiper was acknowledging the price, the cost of their sin when they slit the throat of the animal, we under the new covenant need to remember the price for our redemption was the cross. And I, and I say that we need to remember the price that was paid because we talk about the cross a lot. We, we sing about the cross. We love the cross. We treasure the cross. We have cross-centered ministries, cross-centered books, cross-centered everything. And I think the problem with that, the only problem, it's, that's actually a good problem to have, but the problem that may come with the, the goodness of being so cross-centered is we forget what the cross actually was. We forget what happened at the cross and why it happened. So just imagine... The terrorists came into the congregation and they selected one of our young men and drug him up front. They tortured him in front of all of us and then they impaled him. None of us would be singing at that point. We would be shrieking in pain. We would be crying. We'd be pleading. We'd be begging. Please don't. Please stop. Brothers and sisters, that's what happened at the cross. It was horrible. An innocent man died at the hands of very cruel people. That was the cost of our sin. We need to remember what the cross is. We need to never forget the real price that was paid on our account. Lest we begin to take our sin lightly. So the means that we see to dealing with the burden of guilt are the same for the New Testament worship as well as the Old Covenant worshiper. Confession. Atonement. Thirdly, restitution. Verse 16. He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing, and he shall add to it a fifth part and give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. Twenty percent is added to the sacrifice as a means for making restitution with, in sinning against God. This is the, the worshiper is saying, I realized what I'd done was really awful, and I want to make it right, giving 20% on top of what I'm already giving in the guilt offering. But this restitution is also required for sins against other people. In chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, those first seven verses really demonstrate all different kinds of sin and what must be done to make restitution for them. 
Verse 2 speaks of robbery and extortion and deception. Verse 3, one who has lied. Verse 4 explains that whatever he has taken needs to be restored. And then verse 5, with the restitution, it needs to come in full and with an additional one-fifth more. So what God is communicating is, when you wrong a person, and then when you wrong me, you need to not just make up for what you did, you need to add another piece onto it to show that you really want to make things right. You really acknowledge what you've done. If a person stole $100, they would need to give back that $100 and add another $20 to it. And this is also why Jesus tells his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go home. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Because if, you, if, you're, if your brother has something against you because of some sin that you've done and you come to worship me, it's, it's, it's hypocritical. God cares about what other people think in the sense if we've sinned against them. We need to be reconciled. This is also why Zacchaeus, after speaking with Jesus, responded the way he did. You know the story well. In Matthew 19.8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. If I stole $40, I'm going to give 160 What's he doing? He's saying, I don't just feel bad for what I did. I want to really make up for it. Not just a fifth, but four times what I've taken. It demonstrates the reality that if you recognize that what he did was wrong and it was evil. It's this genuine grief that takes place in the sinner. Paul describes this kind of grief in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It's different from worldly grief that produces death. He says, For see what earnestness the godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. He's saying, Corinthians, the fact that you've gone out of your way to demonstrate that you've you felt guilty for what you did and you want to make it right. You've done everything you could to make it right. That's what a Christian does. And parents, we need to recognize when our kids sin against one another, we shouldn't just be looking for, I'm sorry. Because that's not a really a Christian response. Now, yes, we should say we're sorry. We should want to make things right. But we shouldn't be satisfied with just words. It's okay to say, if you're really sorry, what are you going to do to, to try and make things right with your sister, with your brother? We can't train ourselves to just be hypocritical, just surfacey Christians. When we commit wrong against another or against God, we need to make sure we're willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. Or else it's not, it's not real. And how easy it is to deceive ourselves into thinking we really grieved over our sins when we're just playing a game. If a person is truly sorry for what they've done, they're going to do everything they can to try and make it right. And so confession, atonement, and restitution are the means of removing the stain of guilt from the sinner. 
And these things should also be evident in us as we look to Christ, who's the perfect guilt offering. Again, we don't need to bring guilt offerings like the Old Testament saints did. We don't need to go buy goats and slit their throat. We can simply look to the perfect Lamb of God who was slain for us. But at the same time, we still need to discern the heart of God behind these offerings. Knowing what He required of Israel tells us much about what He wants from us. He desires us who have been given permanent access into His presence through the blood of Christ. He desires us to have an an even more worshipful heart than even these Israelite saints. So in conclusion, what do we practically do with the sin and the guilt that we continue to encounter? I want to start maybe just by pointing out by way of application what not to do with sin and guilt. Again, first of all, don't blame another person. Don't blame another person for your sin. Own up to it. It was you. doesn't mean you don't address the sin of another person. You may need to. But own up to what you did is wrong. Secondly, don't ignore reality. Turning to other things to numb the guilt and the pain brought about by sin. Don't turn to alcohol. Don't turn to drugs. Don't turn to entertainment. Don't turn to music. Turn to God. Confess your sin and make it right with Him. Thirdly, don't flee the guilty feelings. Again, there was a reason that God wanted the sinner to personally slit the throat of the animal. He was okay with them recognizing the horrible consequences for their sin. And it wasn't so that they would feel better about themselves. Fourthly, and maybe most importantly for us in in our cultural situation, don't be deceived by self-pity. Guilt over sin is very different than self-pity. See, the difference between godly grief and self-pity is that self-pity is grief over personal favor, favor, sorry, grief over personal failure, whereas godly grief is grief that we have sinned against God. It's not just, man, I can't believe I did something so stupid, something so embarrassing, something so shameful. Gosh, I hope people don't see me. And then we wallow in that, like, I can't believe I did something that would embarrass myself so much. People should see how good I am, but they're now, because of what I did, they're going to see how awful I am. That's self-pity. The core of that response is self-worship. We can't be deceived by that. And and when we do that, it's not so much the sin we grieve, but the embarrassment of being a disappointment. Again, morbid introspection after sinning isn't a godly response. If you recognize that you've sinned, godly grief confesses, turns to the cross, and if necessary, makes restitution. And that's really what we need to do. We need to own up to the reality of what we've done, confessing our sin to God and to others if necessary. If we need to make restitution, let's make restitution for it. And then again, look to the provision God has given for your guilt. We don't make ourselves right with God on the basis of our own works. We look to the cross 
In the Old Testament, it was the guilt offering. Under the New Covenant, it was the sacrifice of Christ. And so believe in the provision that God has given you is enough. You don't need to add to the sacrifice of Christ. If you're guilty, confess it, look to Christ, recognize it's sufficient. It's sufficient to pay for all of your sin. If you're in Christ, that sin has been dealt with. No need for any more animals. No need for any more good works. It's sufficient. Trust in what he has done. And remember that just as that animal was burned up on the altar, completely signifying God accepted it perfectly as a perfect sacrifice on account of that sin of the worshiper. Likewise, in the new covenant, we can look to Christ and understand God has accepted that sacrifice for all sin completely. And he demonstrated it by having Christ rise from the dead. Perfect. It is finished. And so if you're here today and you feel the burden of sin and guilt, understand there's nothing you need to do except acknowledge your guilt and your sin and trust in the provision of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that it is only on account of what you have done for us and the provision of Christ that we have forgiveness for our sin. And we want to sing of our great love for him. Because he took what we deserved. None of us are innocent before you, Lord. We've all committed intentional and unintentional sins by the thousands. And the only reason for hope that we have is Christ. And so it's our desire that we would exalt Christ and Him alone in the remainder of our service together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.